Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Warm Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. But right now, let's talk about David's heart of spiritual failure. And, of course, when we mention David, if we're talking negatively, what instance comes up in your mind? Bathsheba. That's what you think about. Uh, Here you had a man who at one time was described as being after God's own heart. And yet later on in his reign and in his life, he uh, it's not just his sin with Bathsheba. Have you ever heard in the political that it's not the scandal that gets a person... It's the what? The cover-up. Boy, David, he really does. His sin was bad. It was bad enough. But because of some things we're going to notice as we consider this study together, it went from being bad to worse, a whole lot worse. And it's all because that's what sin does to us. And so there's a lot of uh, practical warnings and lessons, I think, that we can learn from David's a very poor judgment. All right, let's start with letter A here. I hope you have a pen or a pencil maybe you have access to so that you can follow along with me. When we think about a heart of failure, I have chosen four characteristics from this rather familiar account about David and his sins involving or concerning Bathsheba. Number one, he had a heart that didn't restrain his eyes. A heart that didn't restrain what he looked at. His eyes. Look with me in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide, we might say perhaps around dusk, that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw. I want you to circle that three letter word. S-A-W. He saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. We all know and understand that bathing is a very personal time. Bathing is very personal, it's very intimate, and frankly put, no one is supposed to be looking at another person bathing to she is not married. You know, that, that's reserved for husband and wife, wife and husband. And yet here David is, he, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, you might say. He notices this very beautiful woman, a godly man that's careful of his heart. What's he going to do? Immediately. Like, oh, I didn't need to you know. And then probably fight for a while trying to get it where? Out of his mind. Because that's, that's, that's how powerful this is. But David obviously did not do that. Okay? He, he got an eye full it became a heart full, and he just kept on. And that's, that's just so bad. We live today 
in the age of internet pornography. And, and that is one of the quickest ways to not only soil a person's mind and soul, but that's one of the quickest ways to really just wind up on the road to hell. Okay, Because it has addictive qualities. There are things that I, I like to describe it like this. It gets its hooks in you. And once it gets its hooks in you, You've got an uphill battle then, not just to save your marriage, not just to save whatever, to save your soul. You've got an uphill battle. I'm not saying it can't be done. Thank God it can be done. But I'm saying you're going to have to work at it, and it's going to be difficult. And so let's talk about a heart that doesn't restrain one's eyes, okay? What about Matthew 5 and verse 28? Remember, Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said that when a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, to think sexually about her, though she's not his wife, Jesus says he hath committed what? Adultery with her already in his heart. Now, I want to be specific here and make something clear. Jesus did not say he's committed fornication with her. And that's important. Because some brethren take Matthew 5, 28, and they try to say, well, man, he, you know, this woman now has a right to put her... No, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. This is a terrible sin, but it's not fornication. And the grounds for divorce and remarriage is fornication. So we're not saying that. That's not what Jesus taught. But what we are saying is, is that this man becomes guilty before God. He becomes guilty. This can cost him his soul, just like it were fornication. It's sin. All sin is damnable. And so Jesus says, don't look after a woman to lust after her in your heart. A woman to whom you're not married, obviously. You know, this is an ancient problem. I believe that the oldest book in the Bible is most likely the book of Job. Now, the events recorded in Genesis take us back before Job's time. The events... But as far as when the book was actually authored and penned, I believe it was probably the book of Job. And you go to this ancient book, and in Job 31 and verse 1, Job, the ancient patriarch, says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I have made a covenant with my eyes. And then he asks this question. He says, why should I... Think upon a maid. Now, typically in biblical times, a maid would denote an unmarried woman. Now, if she's unmarried, it goes without saying that she's not married to Job. <laughs> this is not his wife. He says, basically, I have no business thinking sexual thoughts about a woman to whom I am not married. I have no business entertaining that in my head. And so he says, I have made a covenant with what? My eyes. Years ago at Faulkner in a speech class, we were taught that the eye is the window to the soul. And that's true in communication. If you want to communicate with somebody, you look them in the eye. You know, that's the window to the soul. But I'm here to tell you what, the eye is the window to the soul in more ways than just communication. 
the, the biggest part, I would say the lion's share of sensory intake, data that we're taking into our minds, it probably comes through our eyes. I, I know we hear stuff and we can even feel stuff and smell stuff and taste stuff. But I would dare say that the biggest part of sensory intake, what are we taking into our brains, it comes through our eyes. And Job, even though he lived thousands of years ago, Job understood something about that. He says, if I know I have no business lusting after another woman to whom I'm not married, if I know I have no business doing that, I've got to control what? I've got to control what I see. I've got to control what I look at. And he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. People, th- people one day are going to write down Cliff Goodwin's crazy. I know they are. Uh, but let me share with you something I do. I coach myself. What do you mean you coach yourself? I talk to myself. Now, I, I might not always do it out loud, but I'm going to just tell you, I'm not ashamed to do it out loud, okay? Sometimes I talk to myself out loud. I think Christianity is very practical. I really think it is. And if you think I'm crazy, too bad, I don't really care. But if, if I know there's something that I need to stay away from or something that's a danger to me spiritually, I'm not above talking to myself and saying, Cliff, you don't need to do this. You don't need to do this. Or you need to turn that channel right now. You need to do that. Whatever. And, and folks, I think when it comes to our souls, don't we all need to take it that seriously? Really? And, and I'm the first to tell you, I'm not Superman. I'm not better than any other man in this audience. And, and these are things that are pitfalls. These are things that are dangerous for us as people. And a heart that doesn't restrain one's eyes is a heart that is set up for spiritual failure. It sure is. So that's characteristic number one. Letter B, move down on your outline. In the second place with David and Bathsheba, we're going to see a heart that abused his power. A heart that abused his power. You know, one of the wonderful blessings... I say it's a blessing. I I think it should be a blessing if it's properly used. That we have in life is that we're given the opportunity along the way of life. There are often a lot of places where you can stop a problem before it happens. Maybe I'm I'm not wording that too well. But let's go back here to David in verse 2. The moment he looked down on that roof and saw a naked woman bathing, what should David have done immediately? Okay, I need to go back inside. I need to go back inside and I need to pray until I get that out of my mind. Okay? But he didn't do that. Instead, he made it worse. Read verse 3. David sent and inquired uh, after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba? I wonder if the person saying, David, you should know who she is. This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, I think, was one of the mighty men, if I'm not mistaken. He was definitely one of David's right-hand men. And maybe the messenger is saying, David, you know who she is, don't you? This is your best man's wife, so to speak. So he not only quit looking when he should have quit looking, 
But then he, he has the opportunity to let it go now, leave it be. No, he, he plays with it a little bit more. He wants to find out who she is. See? He makes another mistake. He shouldn't be. Why is that important? You need to get it out of your mind. He doesn't. Verse 4. And then David sent messengers and took her. You got to understand, David's king. In, in ancient times, and I guess in modern times for that matter, what's the thing about kings and their desires? You can't tell them no. I mean, pretty much, especially in ancient times, a king got what he wanted. He sent messengers, they took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned into her house. Now, I don't know, and, and this is not intended to be some scholarly debate as to whether or not Bathsheba was a willing party. I don't know. I'm of the opinion, I think she was probably seduced. She might not have been too willing in the beginning, but you've got to keep in mind, again, David is who? King. This is Bathsheba's chance to be with the most powerful man in the country. Okay, So I, I don't know. I don't know whether she were a willing party or whether this was coerced. I don't know. But I do know this, at any rate, David abuses his power. Because he never should have sent and inquired after her. He never should have fetched her and brought her to his chambers. Uh, and then, even if she were a willing party, he is still an authority figure that has authority over her and the whole nation, and it's an abuse of his power. A heart that abuses the power entrusted to it is a heart that is set up for spiritual failure. Spiritual failure. Now, as we sit and we think about this present point, maybe some of you are thinking, given a great deal of power that there are ways that we have power over our bodies we have power over our words we have power every one of us in here has a great deal of power okay even though none of us maybe are rulers or officials or anything but we have individual freedom we have power have you ever thought about what it means when in the very beginning, Genesis 1, it says that you and I were created in the image of God? I don't know, but I suspect that this volition has something to do with that. Volition is the power of choice. It's what you've got. It's what I've got. We're made in God's image. God has given us a great deal of power. Now, how do we use it? How do we use it? Before I get to these verses, let me illustrate like this. My son Cade turned 18 in August. Can't believe that. My oldest is 18. And a month and a half before he turned 18, he moved out. He left home, 17. Moved down to Florida, Mexico Beach, Florida, which no longer exists, but it did at that time. It was rather nice. Uh, it's been wiped out since then. Moved down there. 
And, you know, that's the point in life. even going to church it's because of this concept right here for the first time in their lives they have newfound power mom and daddy ain't telling me what to do you, you know now Beth might would have liked this but we didn't call in there every day and say okay do you need to go one of us sooner or later is going to grow up and, and we've got to be trusted with the power that God gives us. Every one of us. Chapter 5. This is kind of one of my soapboxes, but I'll try not to stay on it too long. People think that Ananias and Sapphira got killed because they didn't give all the money from the sale of the land. That's false. I don't believe that for a moment. Okay. Now Barnabas, the example at the close of Acts chapter 4, he had given all of the proceeds. But Ananias and Sapphira, perhaps they wanted that same pat on the back, that same commendation. Oh, Ananias and Sapphira, that's so good of y'all, you know. But the problem is, is they didn't want to do what? They didn't want to give all of the proceeds. Now, there would have been nothing wrong with them selling the land and giving a portion of it. I know that because in Acts 5, 3, and 4, what did Peter say? You didn't have to do this. But he says, no, you went ahead and you lied to the Holy Ghost. You didn't lie to me and you lied to God. About it. it was the lie that that land was in their power, and they abused their power not by selling or not by retaining the land, they abused their power. And been up front about it and say, look, we're giving this much, we, we kept some for us, we, we're giving this much, and I think the story would have read very, very differently they had the power over their possessions now what study very much philemon but you know philemon is the story of a runaway slave his name was onesimus and his master's name was philemon and onesimus run away from his master and he made it all the way to rome where paul was a prisoner it was about 1100 miles from colossus To Rome, where Paul was under house arrest at that time, his first imprisonment. And long story short, this runaway fugitive slave finds Paul. And you know what Paul does with anybody he's around very long? Teaches them. And not only does he teach them, he converts them. He converts them. And so Onesimus now is a Christian. He's a new creation. He's a babe in Christ. And Paul says, basically, if you read Philemon, verses 13 and 14, don't ask me which chapter now. Verses 13 and 14, you read it, 
And Paul basically says, I'm paraphrasing, he says, man, I would love to keep Onesimus with me. Onesimus would be a great servant for me, you know. I'm not at liberty. I can't come and go. I'm under house arrest. I could use Onesimus to run errands for me. He would be a tremendous help to me. But he tells Philemon, he says, without your mind or without your consent, I'm not going to keep him. He says, uh, Onesimus is your servant. He's not mine. He says, and y'all need to get things patched up. You know, because there was probably some bad blood there when he ran off. He says, he's a brother in Christ now. Y'all got to get this worked out. And Paul says, I'm not going to abuse my power as an apostle. And I'm not going to keep him with me without your consent. I'm telling you, if we stop and think about it, every one of us in life, every one of us has more power than what we give ourselves credit. And we need a heart, not really this heart, we need a heart that doesn't abuse the power, whatever power it is, with which we've been entrusted. Because if somebody gives you power, it's really a trust, isn't it? It's because they trust you. I'm giving you the power. Okay? I, I gave Shelby the power to drive our four-wheeler last night. She did a good job. I didn't put enough gas in it, so I messed that up. That was my fault. Letter C, another be failing before God. And that is a heart of deception and manipulation. A heart of deception and manipulation. I might should be embarrassed when I tell you this, but I'm not. Do you, 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 would you agree that no matter how many times you've read a, a, a section of the Bible... Would you agree that you're always able to find new stuff? Okay, good. I don't feel so bad. Because <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've studied about David and Bathsheba. Okay, I, I've, I've known that story all my life, so to speak. I was studying this two weeks ago, trying to be ready for today. And I want to share with you a feeling that washed over me. Through second verses 25 somewhere in there verse 25 the feeling that washed over me was I don't really like David now that's odd because David's one of my favorite maybe not to extend it is for Lee but David's one of my favorite heroes of the Old Testament but I had not put enough thought into what's going on throughout all of this chapter. And I read it afresh, you might say. I read it more like for the first time. You can never totally do that. But I was maybe trying. About two weeks ago, and when I got down to about verse 25, I'm like, I don't even like David. This is ugly. You know, David is a horrible person in this chapter. And he is. There's no excuse. David is a horrible person in this chapter. You know why? Deception and manipulation. Deception and manipulation. Hold your Bible here. I've got my Bible marked. Turn over to Proverbs 28. This is one of the most important verses. Now, this is, what I'm about to say is a statement of opinion. 
which means it could be right, it could be wrong, take it or leave it. In my opinion, Proverbs 28 and verse 13 is one of the most important Proverbs in the whole book. It's my opinion. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. You know, the Old Testament principles for forgiveness were not different from the New Testament principles. Now, I understand they had a different sacrificial system. And they were under that law. I know all of that. But let's just talk about the rudiments, the basics, the principles. You know what God said under the Old Testament? You need to own up to what you've done and you need to turn away from it. You need to forsake it. That's repentance. Well, that's not what we find in the New Testament. You need to confess. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Same thing today. We need to own up to what we've done. Be a man. Be a woman. Step up and say, you know what? I'm, I, I did bad. I'm sorry. I messed up. Own up to what you've done and then quit doing it. Amen. Forsake it. Do you know why we're still talking about David and Bathsheba 3,000 years later? In all likelihood, why we're still talking about it? It's because David didn't commit adultery with her and then repent and take whatever consequences came his way and made, made the best of a bad situation. He didn't do that. Now, we might still be talking about it, but it wouldn't have the stigma, I don't believe, that it has today. And it's because he... I'm going to get people to do what, what I need them to do so that I can cover up my own back. Okay, that's horrible. Look at this list I made for you. Go, go back to our, our text, 2 Samuel 11 and verse 7. Just look at the deception and the manipulation that David weaved here. I, I had never seen this before two weeks ago. This was another new thing that jumped out at me. He was trying to make Uriah feel important in verse was the military commander of David's armies. Joab was, as militarily speaking, nobody was over Joab except David. Right? How do you think, why would, why would David bring in this soldier? Now, he was a mighty man, and he, he was an elite soldier. But why would you bring in this soldier and then ask him, how's the commander-in-chief doing? Is he doing a good job? Boy, king wants to know what I think. See, the manipulation begins right here. It begins in verse 7. He, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. You know, wouldn't that make you feel important? If, if you were one of the mighty men, one of the valiant soldiers, and yet the king brings you in and the king says, Hey, why don't you give me an evaluation? Is Joab, is he doing a good job? Is that, is that battle going like it needs? I just want your opinion, Uriah. How's it going? Oh, man. See? Is David really concerned about how the battle's going? No. 
He's buttering up Uriah, trying to make him feel important. Verse 8, and then David said to Uriah, you need to go down to thy house and wash thy feet. You need to take some R&R time, we say in the military. You need some R&R, rest and relaxation. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. He basically sent enough provisions, enough food. He says, you need to go home, be with your wife, and y'all need to relax and have a nice time. Here's some food. Take this home and y'all just, you know, y'all just enjoy being together. All he wants, of course, is he wants them to come together as husband and wife so that maybe a few months down the road, Uriah thinks this is his baby. You know, that's all he wants. It's manipulation, deception, so forth. When that doesn't work, you know the rest of the story, verse 13, David stoops to getting Uriah drunk. He gets Uriah drunk. When David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even, he went out to lie on his bed with the... Verse 13, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. That's how ugly. Home to be with my wife. I've got a lot of fellow soldiers who are sleeping out under the stars. They can't be with their wives. Why should I have the privilege of going home and being with my wife? He had more integrity as a, in a drunk state than what King David had at this point, sober. Sober as a judge. David's ugly. It's, this is an ugly picture in this chapter. And I don't like David. This, this message fraught with lies in verse 25. So David said unto the messenger, this is the messenger that Joab has sent from the battlefield to the king. This is... There were more people that lost their lives than just Uriah. That's what sin does. Sin explodes and it gets bigger than what you ever thought it was going to get. Man. It gets out of hand. And so this is the messenger that Joab sends and says, look, you need to tell David that, uh, that we've suffered some losses and that Uriah was killed. Well, the messenger comes and he tells David this. And then notice this manipulative, manipulative lie that David weaves in verse 25. Then David said unto the messenger, thus shalt thou say unto Joab, let not this thing displease. Joab that you know we're in the war business and if you're in the war business people are going to get killed that's basically what he's saying the sword devoureth one as well as another and, and tell Joab to make thy battle strong more strong against the city and overthrow it and encourage thou him does that make you sick because what David's doing with this message see the messenger's not privy to all this the messenger doesn't know the plot Joab suffered these losses is because he's doing what? 
what David told him to do. But for the sake of this messenger, David weaves this bogus, sickening thing. You go... You know, we're going to lose some men every once in a while. Folks, I don't like David very much. He's playing this game to cover up his own back. And it's sickening. You're not going to prosper. Which That sin's still hanging over your head just like anything because you've not owned up to it and forsaken it. All right, letter D, a final characteristic of a heart of spiritual failure, and that is a heart that ignores the conscience. Now, I know friends in the denominational world who... is designed to where it only functions as accurately so if you're taught wrong your conscience is going to function wrong because you've been taught wrong so I'm not saying here to let your conscience be your guide but what I am saying and what the Bible I think teaches us is God has put within each of us a conscience so that at least in as much as we know right from wrong, we're not supposed to violate it. Your conscience tells you, now Cliff, you know you shouldn't have said that. Cliff, you need to call them back and say, Paul, you shouldn't have said that. You ought to feel like a heel. You shouldn't have told them that or you shouldn't have done that. Why? Well, because you know that's wrong. Okay. Remember John 8, there on the outline, the Jews had brought this woman taken in. Let me tell you why. Because under the law of Moses, you know what the penalty was for adultery? Stoning. Okay. But who's in power in John 8? What nation's ruling the world in John 8? Oh, we can't stone her, then he's in trouble with the law. But then if Jesus says, all right, you're right, let's stone her because that's what Moses' law said, then either way, we're getting Jesus on this. What's wrong with that whole picture? Who did they bring before Jesus? Jesus knew that. That's why people misinterpret that. They think, he that is without sin, let him cast it for. Well, if, if you take that literally, you could never pass a judgment on anything. Because I sin, you sin. Can, can I not stand here and pass a judgment on sin because I'm an imperfect person? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you've got sin going on in this situation. You knew that if you bring one, you're supposed to bring two. Y'all are neck deep in sin in this. That's what Jesus is saying. But then there in John 8 and verse 9, 
The Bible tells us that they were pricked in their conscience. The older men had been around long enough, they knew they were neck deep in sin. And they said, you know what, we can't do this. So they, they left. And the Bible says they left from the oldest down to the youngest. There is a, no offense to any younger men. It got down to the younger one. Finally, you know, they're like, all right, he's right. We, we're doing this wrong. And they left. Isn't it a blessing to have a conscience? Amen. Isn't it? A blessing. Back off of this. This is not right. Don't do this. You know better than this. Look at some things that should have instantly when they happened. They should have tore David's heart out of his chest and he should have said right then, all right, I've messed up and I need to fix this. Verse 5, Bathsheba turns up what? Turns up pregnant. Now, he's already committed to sin. He's already guilty before God, before Uriah, before everybody. But when that news came, I am with child. That should have been. But he wasn't trying to repent. And, and I tell you, when, when sin is involved, there is no way to fix it Amen. without repentance. Amen. No way to fix it. But that should have done it. And then in verses 11 through 13, when he's trying to manipulate Uriah, and he's trying to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that he might think a few months later that this is my baby. And, and, and when he sees Uriah having more character than what David's had, more integrity, that should have torn at David's heart. That should have been a wake-up call. And said, Man, what kind of a fool am I acting like doing this? But it didn't. Years. And so a lot of things I've told them they've heard before. But I, I, I try to tell this one from time to time. It is not the mistakes, spirit of the sins. It is not necessary that will take them to hell. Huh? It is. No, listen to me. It's your reaction to those sins. God is long-suffering. That means that God gives us space and time. We read in Revelation 2 or 3. He gives us space to repent. I, I know and, and understand the sense in which I'm saying this. Yes, sin is what causes us to be lost. Yes. But when you step back and you look at the big picture, when you fall into sin, there's no reason why that has to be. What happens is the manipulation, the hardening of our hearts. And you know what that will do? Now that will take you to hell. That's where that will take you. Because you've done committed the sin and now the sin's doing what? 
It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You'll be lost. Move down to number one in our conclusion. When we look at David here, we see a heart that is selfish and willful. The word willful to me is one of my favorite words. I don't like what it means, but, but I like the accuracy of what it conveys. Basically, a person or a heart that is willful is, I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want you telling me what to do. I want you to leave me alone. Okay? Whenever you see somebody in the church get to that point, you can't do much for them. Okay? A lot of times it's dramatic happening to bring them to their knees because what they've got is a willful heart. Talking about it, they don't want a brother or a sister talking about it. They don't want to hear it. Leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do. Does that sound a little bit like David? will cause us to be lost. Look at the results, number two. Look what happened here. I, I, I could only number seven. I, I'm sure that if you went through... ...but it ultimately died. David didn't get to raise that child. Number two, now you haven't thought about this maybe... I thought about that in verses 3 and 4. You don't think the servants knew what was going on when David says, who's that woman over yonder, two houses down? Who's that woman? Those servants knew. And then what about the messengers who went and got her? What happened? How would you like to work for that kind of a boss? Sleeps around, takes men's wives. Then number three, multiple servants of David are killed. Not just Uriah. It would have been a tragedy just for to lose one good man. But David lost a lot of soldiers. Oh, I say a lot. He lost multiple soldiers. Verse 16. Number five, a woman becomes an adulteress and eventually a widow. Forever, you know, he's dead. It's hard. Can you imagine how hard it was for Bathsheba, having been an adulteress, knowing that she was unfaithful to her husband, and now he's gone? I mean, I know Beth. I'm assuming Bathsheba's not a victim. I'm assuming that she was compliant, but even if she was. This is hard on her. You say, well, she gets what, well, we don't want to go down that road if she gets what she deserves. Because the fact of the matter is, we all probably need to get what we deserve and none of us want it. And I feel sorry for a woman who is first an adulteress and is now a widow and has to live with that. I feel sorry for her. Number six, enemies of the Lord 
were given great occasion to blaspheme. You don't find that until the next chapter. But basically God through the prophet Nathan tells David, David, people know what you've done. They know who you are. They know the position you're in. And now they're looking at Israel. They're looking at me. And they speak evil of God and of God's people because of what you've done. And then number seven, the Lord was displeased. It's amazing to me the conciseness of that. Let's look at that. Last. I asked the question back home a week ago. Imagine if the chapter just ended right there and you didn't have that last sentence. See, there's another sentence in verse 27. But imagine it's not there. Then the chapter would close with us thinking, well, I guess David gets everything that he wanted. There's another sentence. But the thing that David had done did not make God happy. And I'm here to tell you what, that story's not over. That story's not over. You think God's happy with everything going on in the world today? No. But that story's not over. God doesn't settle all of his accounts at the end of the day. God's going to have a day of reckoning for his accounts. And God help you and God help me, God help us all, not to have hearts of failure possessing some of these characteristics that we